even before COVID-19 hit, which has been quite a big shake to 2020, New York City was already grappling with a food insecurity crisis. Nearly 1.2 million New Yorkers were experiencing food insecurity, including one in five New York City children. With the pandemic and a little economic crisis that followed, the situation has only gotten worse. 1.5 million New Yorkers are now struggling to feed themselves and their families, a 38% increase. One in four children are now food insecure, a 49% increase over pre-COVID numbers. Not surprisingly, the food insecurity crisis disproportionately impacts Blacks, Black and Latinx communities. According to a recent City University New York study, the proportion of New Yorkers who worry about their households running out of food before they can buy more is twice as high uh, for Latinx as for white city residents and 1.4 times as high for black as white residents. Across the nation, the pandemic has only worsened food apartheid conditions that exist for nearly 24 million Americans. The pandemic has highlighted inequities and environmental racism throughout our food system that we will be discussing more tonight. Not just hunger in our community, but in terms of the entire food chain. A recent study shows that white people comprised over 97% of non-farming landowners, 96% of owner operators, and 86% of tenant operators. And that systemic racism is also found in communities of color when it comes to finding healthy food. Black families are 2.5 times and Latinx families are 1.4 times more likely than white families to live in neighborhoods without access to a full service grocery store. Our guests are working across our food system from activism and farming to research and policy. And to begin, we'll look at the current state of hunger and poverty in New York City. Sophie Coyer is research director at the Center on Poverty and Social Policy at Columbia University. Her research focuses on anti-poverty policies at the national and local levels with a particular interest in child allowances, federal and local minimum wage policy and housing policy. Coyer works at the Poverty Tracker, a joint project of Robin Hood and Columbia University that is a quarterly survey of adults in New York City for tracking dynamics of poverty, hardship and other forms of wealth and disadvantage. In November, Coyer and her colleagues released a study on food hardship in New York City in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, which is what she'll discuss with us tonight. So Sophie, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks so much. Um, and thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm really grateful to be here and looking forward to the discussion and, um, and the presentation, presentations from Karen and Liz. Um, I'm gonna share my screen and hope it works. <laughs> uh, and uh, I will present results and um, from an analysis that we did using data from, um, as Ember was speaking, mentioned, excuse me, the poverty tracker, which is a longitudinal study of poverty and material hardship and disadvantage in New York City um, that we run out of Columbia and is uh, run through a joint partnership with Robin Hood. Um, so I'll quickly go provide, excuse me, an introduction to the poverty tracker study, which will help like understand where these results come from and then show our results, um, excuse me, our approach to assessing the impacts of the pandemic on both food hardship and food pantry use in New York City. Um, some key findings, I'll discuss the key findings from our analysis as well as some of the policy implications. Oh, okay. So a quick uh, overview of the poverty tracker. It's a longitudinal study of poverty, disadvantage and well-being in New York City that's been actually in, um, in the field since 2012. And what makes it longitudinal is it's not that we just capture data at one point in time and then kind of leave it. We work with the same families and households for up to four years, assessing uh, both their the amount of like material hardship they're facing, which is things like, as we're discussing, you know, food hardship and, and ability to afford enough food um, for the month, as well as falling behind on rent and facing um, evictions uh, as well, and not being able to see a doctor because of cost. So there are lots of different material hardships that we measure in addition to measuring income poverty um, to get a more holistic understanding of the challenges that New Yorkers are facing. 
Um, we also measure health and understand, you know, how many, what share of New Yorkers are facing a work limiting health condition or report that they're in poor health. So every three months we interview a representative sample of New Yorkers kind of tracking trends in, in some of these measures, as well as a number of others uh, measures of, of uh, economic stability and disadvantage. So I'll quickly discuss our approach to assessing the impacts of the pandemic on food hardship and pantry use. So in every month from November, 2019 to October, 2020, our surveys asked a representative sample of New Yorkers in the past 12 months, how often did you worry whether food would run out before you had enough money to buy more? And how often did the food you purchased not last and you weren't able um, to buy more? These two questions form the basis of a food hardship measure, which is somewhat similar to a food insecurity measure, but there are some differences that we can discuss later. Um, but food hardship is defined as sometimes or often running out of food or worrying food would run out before you had enough money to buy more. We also asked, which is a very, there's very little data actually at the city level on pantry use. Um, and so we ask uh, our, um, Respondents, in the past 12 months, did you receive free food from a church, food bank, or food pantry? Um, and with a yes, no response. So our approach, um, excuse me, these questions form the basis of the results uh, presented in our most recent report on food pantry use and food hardship in the city and how it's changed dramatically um, since the COVID outbreak. So here are some of our key findings, which I'm, um, dive into. So the first, and this kind of echoes what, what Amber was saying, is that food hardship and, and insecurity has been a widespread problem in New York City for years. So these results are from before the pandemic, where we see that overall about 36% of adults in the city face food hardship, and that more than half of Black and Latino New Yorkers face uh, food hardship compared to about 15% of white New Yorkers. So extremely stark disparities along racial and ethnic lines that, um, you know, as we know, are, are really the product of structural forces that are uh, perpetuating these inequities. Um, we also see variations uh, by immigration status, as well as educational attainment. This is just a, a map showing the variations in, in food hardship across the city. So there are areas of the city that are um, marked in red where like upwards of 60% of adult residents um, faced some form of food hardship over the course of a year. So sharp, sharp disparities across the city. But there were, you know, prior to the pandemic, while there were high rates of food hardship, fewer people reported using a food pantry. So about 12% of, of uh, New Yorkers, adult New Yorkers reported using a food pantry. But since March, you know, things have dr changed dramatically. Um, in this graph, we show the, the changes in the rates of uh, food pantry use from November to uh, September and October of this year. So food pantry use has, has skyrocketed, skyrocketed. We've seen about a 300% or a three times increase in the rate of food pantry use among uh, New Yorkers. And when we look at rates of pantry use among uh, New Yorkers who are receiving SNAP benefits, the rates are just significantly even higher. So before the pandemic, this is about, again, November and December, 2019, about 33% of SNAP recipients, which is a SNAP is similar to it's the formerly the food stamps program, uh, reported using a food pantry. But in uh, September and October, it, moves to 65%, just showing that these, these benefits are not covering needs, um, the needs of New Yorkers right now. We also see that food pantry use and ca the CARES Act buffered against a dramatic increase in food hardship since the onset of the pandemic. Um, uh, quickly, the CARES Act was the large, you know, federal response to the um, pandemic that came into effect in March of 2020. And key to this analysis is that was the, the legislation that uh, provided the original stimulus checks of $1,200 uh, per adult. With, there were also people left out of that. Um, and we can speak about that in the um, Q&A if anybody has any questions. 
Um, but it also included the large expansions to unemployment insurance, including the $600 per week supplement that expired in uh, late July and uh, pandemic emergency unemployment compensation and un pandemic unemployment assistance, which both extended the coverage time and broadened uh, definitions of covered workers under unemployment insurance. So it really kind of buffered the unemployment uh, system, but just for a short period of time. And in our analysis, we're finding that the rates of food hardship were actually somewhat stable through the summer, where we see you know, about 35, 34% of New Yorkers reporting that they were facing food hardship in those earlier months of the pandemic. Again, this is kind of after that big swell that we saw in like early March, but, um, but again, we don't see a, a large increase in, in food hardship yet. The idea being that, you know, pantry, the expanded coverage of pantries, as well as these large benefits provided through these policies were somewhat leveling rates of food hardship. But since their expiration, we're, we're seeing, you know, these significant rises in food hardship, um, such that in September and October, 42% of adults in the city were reporting that they were running out of food without money to buy more. Again, I, the, the policy like response is, is even more evidenced in this uh, slide where we show the rates of food hardship before and after the expiration of the pandemic unemployment compensation, which is that $600 a week supplement to, um, to unemployment insurance. And we see that this, is, this side of the graph shows um, rates of food hardship among New Yorkers who lost work in, because of COVID, lost work or employment income, excuse me. We see that you know, in April to July, about 44% of New Yorkers in that group were reporting an experience of food hardship. And that rises to 53% after the expiration of that additional um, $600 payment. Um, we also see on the other side, that rates of food hardship appear to be declining among New Yorkers who have not lost work and um, have been stably employed. Just showing how the pandemic is, is building on inequities that preceded um, this, this you know, crisis and it kind of expanding those inequities, right? Like people who are secure are like saving more and, and have more somewhat, somewhat more financial security while people who are struggling, it's just becoming harder and harder and harder over time. Um, so just, I'll summarize those key findings again. Um, the first is that food hardship has been a widespread problem in New York City for years, that this pandemic is just making worse. Before the pandemic, food pantries helped many New Yorkers get by in times of need, but since then they've become a, just an extreme lifeline for millions across the city. Um, New York City's food pantries and the CARES Act buffered against a dramatic increase in the in food hardship in some of the earlier months of the pandemic, but with the um, expiration of key provisions in the CARES Act and you know the the lag in in um, the time it took for to provide another round of federal stimulus, we were seeing a significant increase in food hardship. And policies that provide cash-based supports to New Yorkers are just key to staving off future increases in food hardship. Um, according to our results. So thanks uh, so much for your time. Now I must stop. Oh. Oh. Thanks Sophie for sharing with us. It's fascinating to, uh, I guess a little horrific bit of fascinating to see uh, the numbers behind, uh, you know, what we've kind of experienced and seen uh, and to know that it, yeah, it, is, it is that rough right now. Um, so thanks for sharing with us. Okay, so uh, while, I, while I would love to dive into a million questions, I will also leave those for the discussion time. And for any who came in a little bit later, we will have uh, a longer Q&A session at the end uh, that we will be uh, diving into the discussion questions. I want to make sure that everybody uh, gets their adequate speaking time first. Uh, so I'm going to turn now to Karen Washington. Karen Washington is an activist and farmer who has been working for food justice for decades, uh, who began community gardening in the 1980s in the Bronx. Karen is the co-founder of Rise and Root Farm, Washington founded Farm School NYC and Black Urban Growers and received a James Beard Foundation Leadership Award in 2014. 
She's also worked to transform the Bronx's empty lots into spaces where food can grow, helped launch a farmer's market, and relentlessly engaging her community has remained focused on the intersections of food and issues like poverty, racism, a lack of healthcare, and joblessness. So welcome, Karen. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I wanna start off by just talking about my own experience and really looking at food security in communities of color. So I started this journey 30 years ago and I can remember back in, 19, in 1996, the World Food Summit defined food security as existing when all people at all times had, act, had access to sufficient, safe, nutritious food to maintain a healthy and active lifestyle. With that, many people were saying that people in poor urban and um, rural areas, if they wanted to have food security, all they had to do was eat some vegetables, grow some vegetables, give up soda and exercise. And if by magic, just by eating vegetables and drinking water, it was going to solve the problems in a food system without looking at the institutional and structural determinants that reinforce racism in today's society. So a question I ask time and time again, as I go across the country and speak about food insecurity is why in the greatest country in the world, where we grow enough food and we waste enough food, that food is not getting back to the people that need it the most. And so some would say, well, it's the food system. The food system is broken and it needs to be fixed. And many of us would agree because I used to believe that too. I was drinking the Kool-Aid until I started to sort of look at the food system closely, peel back and realize that the struggle for healthy food and clean water brings to the surface the, so the social economic disparities we often see in communities of color. And these disparities did not happen overnight. It started centuries ago. And so folks, I wanna take you back on a little history trip because I had to find out what is it about being poor? Are you born into being poor? And so just bear with me, after the Civil War, and the Emancipation Proclamation in 1865, free black slaves had the opportunity to amass wealth through land ownership. In March of that year, General William T. Sherman signed a field order. It was Field Order 15, giving former slaves 400,000 acres of land. Just remember that 400,000 acres of land. For the first time, blacks went from slave workers to landowners, yet that promise of land to build wealth was short-lived. After the assassination of President Lincoln, President Andrew Johnson, now in office, revoked that order, which meant that the land that was promised to Blacks was now given back into the hands of slave owners. And I want you to sort of think about that. 400,000 acres of land to slaves so that they can amass wealth was taken away. And it was a spiral framework of racial and wealth inequalities ever since, dating from the great migration when millions and millions of blacks left the South, left with little land and wealth that they had, to the GI Bill. Imagine the GI Bill where blacks were coming back from World War I, World War II, the Korean War, and were denied mortgages and credits to buy homes, to the Federal Housing Act that participated in redlining, drawing a line so that Blacks can go into neighborhoods to buy homes or were denied home ownership and were, put and were forced into ghettos, or the dismal power of both the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act 1965, leaving Blacks with little or no access to build wealth thus setting the stage for income inequality, poverty, and a food system in which the majority of land was owned by whites, still owned by whites, and the majority of farmers were white and still are white. Out, out of 57,000 white farmers here in New York State, only 139 are black. And through it all, we now have an industrialized food complex that victimizes the poor through its subsidized charity-based food system. Long before COVID folks, here in New York City, we would see lines and lines of people in underserved com communities getting their food from soup kitchens 
and food pantries on a daily basis. We have known for quite a long time that this correlation between the food that we eat and our health, that unhealthy food winds up where in poor neighborhoods, while healthy food go into affluent neighborhoods. And even though we ask people to eat healthy, the healthy, more nutritious food is expensive, while the food with little or no nutritional value is cheap. We know that there's a high incidence of diet-related diseases in poor, community, poor communities. We have known these facts and statistics for decades. And frankly, folks, I'm tired of it. I'm tired of repeating myself. I'm tired of people using terms like food deserts. Oh, wait a second. No, it's food mirage. Oh, wait a second. I heard something totally different now. And so when people say these terms, they're outside of terms. They're outside of terms to know how people have access to food, where in fact, we know we do have food. We have the junk food. We have the processed food. We have the fast food. So I coined the term food apartheid. And you say, wow, food apartheid, because I wanted people to stop, to think about the food system and to think about the food system in terms of race and social injustice, rather than using it as a political construct to focus on data, rather than focusing on the root causes. The impact of of COVID-19 has magnified these inequalities. And although COVID is an equal opportunity virus, its devastation has occurred more in poor neighborhoods and neighborhoods of color. Today, more than ever, this virus has shown how important it is to be healthy and eat healthy. The time is now for us to have these hard conversations around race, economics, and power Looking beyond COVID, we must, ask our, we must ask ourselves, does the food system really need to be fixed? And I say, no, it needs to change. And that change has to come from shifting power. But folks, people with power, they don't want that shift. For them, power is a drug. We have a food system that now has become a commodity based on profits and not on people. It's being used as a tool for people to have power over others. As people, we have even given up our power through silence and complacency. We have given up our power to big ag, to lobbyists and to corporate America. We must shift our power. We must shift our power so that we have a, a, a system where there's more power within a community. We must shift the power dynamics of a food system that leaves the poor and communities of color powerless and victimized. We're always being seen with our hands out, never in the decision-making process with our hands in or a seat at the table. Change must start by giving up power. It's hard to do, it's a drug. But we have to do it because as long as we have a food system that embraces a power dynamic society of power over others, it will remain stagnant and resistant to change. Power must go back into the hands of the community. So what does that power shift look like in community? Well, we have to understand within our community what power is collectively, which means changing the way we view ourselves holistically and not how outsiders say or think we should be or who we are. Poor communities are often looked in terms of needs and deficits and scarcity and problems. We need to focus on our assets, our capabilities, our creativities and solutions. We need to be asked what we want not what we need. Asking a community what they need comes from a place of deficit. Asking them what they want comes from a position of power. We must value our social capital and communal wealth. What does that mean? 
valuing social capital, it means that every person in this country has value and collectively we have the power to make change. We have made change at the ballot box. We can make change economically, hopefully with this new administration by supporting a minimal wage that is fair and just, thus stimulating economic growth and wealth, eventually creating a full system that is just and fair, where people will be able to have land, to have a house, to build wealth. More than ever, this pandemic has forced us to redefine what community looks like. We now engage folks to focus on a local food economy, to support local businesses, small farms, farm workers, locally grown food. We have seen who are the essential workers. The essential workers are you and me and the people who live and work in our communities. Our food system on one hand is simple, the other hand is complex. There are dots along the way that we must connect from the person that puts that seed in the ground to the food that's on our plate. Together, this food system is ours to take back. We all must pay, play a role in building a healthy food system that is fair, just, and equitable. The time for talk is over. The time for us now is to roll up our sleeves and get to work. The question that I'm asking, and I'm asking as society, is who is willing to do that hard work? Thank you. Oh, I feel, whew, that was uh, some powerful, powerful words. Thank you, thank you, Karen, for, for sharing what is both uh, excellent analysis, but also a call to action and some concrete, uh, concrete call to action of what we can get doing and how we need to act now and make this better. So thank you so much for sharing. We turn now to our third of our panelists for the night, uh, Liz Ackles. Liz Ackles is the executive director of the Community Food Advocates, a New York City-based organization that uses advocacy, organizing, and coalition building grounded in solid policy and budget analysis to improve New Yorkers' access to food. Ackles has worked on public policy issues relating to poverty and hunger since 1991 on the city, state, and federal levels. She is a policy person deeply interested and engaged in coalition building and organizing. So welcome, Liz. Uh, thanks, I appreciate the opportunity to be here and, and uh, be on the panel with uh, Sophie and Karen. Uh, I'm gonna um, talk some about, tell you a little bit about our organization and talk about our work and then turn to the New York City's response to the COVID pandemic um, and the increase in um, the already dramatic food insecurity in New York City. Um, so, you know, one of the things that became uh, a, apparent during the, um, as COVID hit, one of the things nationally in New York City was the, what was gonna happen if schools closed? And what, where were children going to be able to access food. Now that's, you know, if you look to, to Karen's point, like this is many layers. This is like an immediate thing with many layers behind it, right? But the bottom line is the school food program provides 30 million meals a, a year to, to students. Um, it's a federal guarantee, meaning that federal money for every child that wants to eat, you know, and participates, the, the, the government um, gets reimbursed and uh, the, the localities get reimbursed. So we focus on, one of the issues we focus on is the school food program. We spearhead a coalition called the Lunch for Learning campaign and we fought um, successfully to get universal free school lunch in New York City with the, the idea being that many kids who are like 75% of children in New York City public schools are eligible previously for free school lunch, 
A third of them weren't participating because of the stigma and poverty shame associated with the program. Um, and, you know, for households that are struggling day to day to pay the rent, to meet, meet food needs, that if the child eats and is comfortable and happy eating meals in school, that's, that's 40 meals a month. Um, so we focus on that. New York City school food is the biggest in the country, serving 900,000 meals a day. Um, so it has a huge reach um, and has for many, many generations. So as COVID hit, this question came up, what happens if the schools closes? What happens to kids? Again, this was certainly true in New York City, but this is a national question. Um, urban, rural, suburban, huge question. And in New York City, we, we didn't know what was gonna happen until like a few days before. And you know, I'm an advocate, so my job is to push and watchdog and bring out problems. And I, I'm pleased to say the city did an extraordinary job. And I'm just gonna talk a little bit about that um, and as it ties into emergency food. So basically they created, you know, they mobilized the largest single food distribution network in the city, um, the school food system that's used to serving 900,000 meals a day. There's nothing that matches that in scale. It's only second in size to the US military to make sure people could get food because there was an immediate crisis that was, was gonna be happening. So they basically, after a few weeks, they, they had food in, in all schools as they were developing the program initially. They then set up sites in 500 sites throughout the city, serving three meals a day, five days a week for families to take home. Um, no identification, no, nothing required. You could pick up for anyone as many meals as you need. And although this is not the way people should have to be able to guarantee that they're gonna have food, the question of families who are where there's food hardship or food insecure don't know where the food is coming from the next day, the next week, the next month, which is a huge number of people. At least we knew the city was going to guarantee, and this is before the feds even said we support this, that there is that people can get food five days a week, three meals a day. Um, so that's that's that was pretty extraordinary. Um, at its peak, that was serving 600,000 meals a day, and it, it's still in place, and I'll talk a little bit about that. In addition, um, the city did, the, the um, Catherine Garcia, who's the, the commissioner, of, who was the commissioner of the Department of Sanitation and is known as an operations guru, was named the food czar. And she looked at a lot of different things, in, in, including transportation of food into the city, all kinds of things like that. But one of the big gaps is that that the, the school food-based response of 600,000 meals a day, what happens with people who are medically vulnerable and shouldn't be out and about? And they set up this system. And to me, this is an example, a prime example of if government moves quickly with creativity, there's the potential to, to have a huge impact. They started a program from scratch because there was no home delivered meals program that the city was running of a significant size. Um, they basically um, uh, contract with, with a bunch of vendors. They used Uber type um, technology where folks could sign up and they, they made a, re a relationship with the Taxi and Limousine Commission out of, out of work taxi drivers to, for people to sign up, it was, you just attested that you didn't have money for food or anyone to go buy it for you. And they had um, three days worth of food for two people in the household delivered. And, and th this is still happening. And this started from scratch and within, within months, they were serving 600,000 meals a day there. Again, I, I say this as, as a very usually cynical advocate. That is to me is a, you know, there's a lot of 
talked about the ineffectiveness of government and nothing has the reach and the resources in the broadest way as strong government programs. And we've seen the erosion of government programs and investment in government programs and the impact it has. So when there's creativity and resources and, and um, innovation put in place, it could be extraordinary. You know, where this is different from emergency food providers is that what we saw early in the pandemic, a lot of emergency food providers shutting down because they're volunteer-based, many seniors running them. The, the medical vulnerability was extraordinary. Um, and here you have a unionized uh, workforce. There were health concerns um, because there wasn't enough PPE. Um, but people who are paid and staffed to, to run this operation. So in terms of this, both the school and the home delivered meals. So our role, I'm not sure of my timing. Can you give me a, a sense of where I am? I think we're probably about like uh, three, three to five minutes. Okay. So our role, so the Lunch for Learning campaign, we're, we're the group that, that fought for universal free lunch and have stayed together for about seven years and made up of uh, public school parents, students, um, the three school-based unions, DC, DC 37 who represents cafeteria workers, um, the United Federation of Teachers and the Principals Union, American Academy of Pediatrics, and as I mentioned, parent leaders from throughout the, throughout the city. And we kind of, we pivoted right away because we were like, the city's doing, um, you know, is doing what they, they should be doing from a public policy point of view, but we want to make sure it was everyone that could access food, uh, no questions asked, that, um, that people could take, you know, it wasn't like mom or dad or another adult in the household, you could pick up food for neighbors, that kind of, that kind of thing. We got um, sites expanded. So it, uh, within our network throughout the entire city, um, we got fed in information about what was going on. We get together every few weeks and, and you know, just sharing what, what you know, and there's a guy named Chris Tricarico who runs a school food program who is extraordinarily open and transparent and, and wanting to hear things, which is not often the case and not defensive. And we've really been able to, to help in that. Now, just to say, you know, there's policy and there's implementation. So at the peak, there was um, um, 600,000 meals a day. Now, New York City public schools serve 900,000 meals a day, about 650,000 uh, lunches and about 250,000 breakfasts. Um, right now, we have 400,000 meals per day being served. Again, it's, it's three days, three meals a day, five days a week. So we know that those numbers are not reaching the, the immediate need. And so, you know, what, what we do is, is try to figure out why, and the, the number of sites have been expanded to almost all schools for households with school-aged children. So we, you know, we push the city on ways to make sure, you know, things that may seem obvious, like about signage and, and about, um, uh, you know, and we're getting that fed in from, so we look for thematic things and individual things where places where people are being turned away, that, that kind of thing. Um, so just to, you know, that, that's a little bit of, of what's happening there. I, some bit of good news is that because of the pandemic, um, the, the USDA who runs the school food program has provided waivers to every school district in the country um, to basically do universal free school lunch. There's free meal, not lunch, free meals for all students, all children. It's basically the summer meals model without me getting into what that is. And um, so this has opened up an opportunity. You know, New York City is, is one of the biggest cities doing, is the biggest city doing universal free school lunch. And it's, it's happening in a bunch of other cities, but you know, uh, everyone I'm sure has heard stories of lunch shaming and um, kids being turned away from lunch because their parents can't pay the fee. 
you know, th that kind of stuff, you know, or told to do chores or marked on their hands or given a cheese sandwich instead of something else. And, you know, the, the only way to do that is to, you know, we've had a, a school food system that structurally has divided children by income for 40 years in the cafeteria. And it's marked the program as a poverty program. Yep. And so different color tickets. Um, and this impacts kids where there's a wide uh, range of income levels. It also impacts kids in the lowest income schools because kids like adults will will decide who has a little bit more and who has who doesn't and torment each other. So lots of kids, despite the need, a third of the kids in New York City public schools before Universal who were eligible were not participating. That's 250,000 kids. So the, the hopeful news is that with the Biden-Harris administration and with a democratically controlled House and Senate and with this issue popping up all over the place about lunch shaming from district school districts throughout the country, that there's some momentum for uh, national universal free school lunch movement. So we're really hopeful for that. We hope you'll keep an eye out for it. Um, and um, I realize I'm short on time. I was going to talk about the good food purchasing policy work that we're doing. We spearhead a campaign um, I want to. I, I don't want to go that. I'm, I'll take one minute to describe it. That basically looks to harness um, the enormous food procurement power that New York City government has. New York City serves 230 million meals a year. That's an extraordinary amount of money and resources to impact the local and regional food economies in the areas of local economies, worker rights, environmental sustainability nutrition of the 230 uh, million meals served and animal welfare. And um, uh, this is happening in a bunch of different cities. New York City is implementing it. We run this uh, a coalition that is um, leading the efforts in New York City and um, with racial equity at the, the core of, of the work. Um, around local economies, worker, worker rights, the, the meals that are served and so on. So I that I did very short shrift there. So I apologize, but I'm trying not to hog up the time. Thank you. No worries. And it looks like Brett uh, was tossing some, some links in the, in the chat there as well for folks who want to find out a little bit more. So Liz, thank you. And thank you for uh, also giving us uh, maybe a little bit of some story of, of hope and, and in the midst of all this and in the midst of the year that we've had. Um, so it is now time to turn to our uh, kind of Q&A discussion time. Uh, and so I did see a couple of um, things in the chat. So let me just pull that open real quick. And it looked like uh, Diana, I could either read those or we could unmute you, whatever um, would work well. Um, and then I see a hand from Melanie, so let me. I, there we go. Okay. Uh, I just want to ask, has anybody uh, done a study on the connection between the reduction of farms that are not run as big businesses and the increase in prisons in upstate New York? Because my understanding is that they're, most of the people who work for the, pr the prisons, which we're trying to reduce, like to get rid of them, they came from the farming industry. Has anybody done any work on that? Also, how do we make, how do we do it? How do we get these horrible toxins out of our food? These the toxins that are, um, even if something is labeled organic, it could be in a field where something's not organic and it could have uh, uh, toxins in it. And they use language, like they say natural flavors. Natural flavors could be something that's absolutely not natural nor good for your health. So there's a lot of the industry that is uh, I'm concerned about. And um, I'm also wondering, you know, we just, we have a strike of uh, important group of workers coming on board recently. The, the whole issue of salary is very important for workers in the food industry and unions. For example, um, I, you know, there are many, there are many big industries that don't have any unions for their staff. And then again, and the, in the supermarkets, 
And also, um, uh, I think, what, what was the other question I had put in the chat? It was about... Uh, um, it was about COVID, uh, the price, prices of food going Oh, through. I want to know if, if there's been a study that uh, uh, can tell us what the, if, how much the increase in the prices is for everybody, <laughs> for healthy and unhealthy food since the COVID, because I suspect it's been substantial. <laughs> but I don't see any studies on that or anybody fighting back on that. Is there a way to fight back? You know, I'm not sure. Because if, for example, I'm an older person. Um, Tuesday, they give a 10% discount at Christini's. It's practically nothing. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let's see. Um, let's see who might have. Uh, and I wondered have... about Working Families Party. Has anybody been involved with them? Because they're the, the, the next to the Democrats. They're the big big deal here so sophie karen liz uh, feel free to i'm going to ask i'm going to answer that question because she answers a lot of ask a lot of questions and like i said from the very beginning we've lost our power we've been silent and complacent and the only way you're going to see change is collectively asking those change and making so that people who are your representative are accountable I mean, you know, I do a homework assignment with students and I ask them to go into a supermarket and ask them exactly where this produce come from. You know what some of the produce managers say when the students ask them? Oh, it's from the truck. And so again, we have to have start having those hard conversations. Having those hard conversations, it's not one person, it's not on dad, it's getting a group of people and starting to ask for change, ask questions. I don't understand what has happened to us. Why have we sat back and... and and expect things to happen without being proactive and asking and doing things. You ask good questions, Diane. I'm just saying you ask excellent questions. I'm just throwing yeah. it out to the universe. Yeah. Uh, Liz, Sophie, did you have anything you wanted to, to add to that? I have, yeah. a, oh, go ahead. Go, no, go ahead, Sophie. I have like um, not a like data as um, advocacy comment, but something that's somewhat related to the price question, um, which I, which there has been some I think re reporting on. Um, there's also you know what I would be interested in seeing and would love to look into is you know variation in pricing by neighborhood within supermarkets, just like what the price is of like a box of cereal at like a supermarket. Um, based on neighborhood and just see like those variations, but more important, uh, not more important, but similarly, um, what we have seen over time is that there has been a reduction in prices of food for high-end products, while high, the cost of uh, less expensive food products or lower, and you know, um, has remained pretty stagnant. And that actually has big implications on the poverty measure through some very technical aspects, which then in turn affects like allocation of resources to neighborhoods. So while it seems like a small thing, it has wide ranging implications. And just like Karen was saying, it has implications about power um, and the allocation of resources across the country. So it's a really good question because of those connections, which are somewhat in the weeds, but um, yeah. Yep. I mean, you you asked a whole bunch of questions, but um, the the fact that prisons are an industry and and uh, you know have grown more and more into an industry in rural counties is is um, you know hugely it becomes uh, uh, you know this this cycle of income and people from the city people people of color mostly from the city you know that to keep the economy buoyed in those in those areas requires um, mass imprisonment. And, you know, that's a huge, um, I mean, I don't know how to say anything about that without it being an understatement. It's, it's a huge structural um, problem, a long time in the making, um, and that needs, needs to be addressed from what it means for New York City residents and what it means for folks, uh, you know, making sure there are alternatives economically um, in rural counties upstate. 
Thank you all three for that. I see, it uh, looks like we have Melanie uh, has a hand raised. I don't see on your screen now. Melanie, are you still nearby? Um, we'll get you unmuted. Give us just a second. And... Okay, there. Hi. Thank you very much for great presentations. Uh, my question could be answered, I guess, by anybody, but I'm particularly uh, would like to ask Karen. Um, uh, Karen, I'm uh, in my 60s, and I remember, but my question is about historical perspective from, let's say, where we are in 220, say 1980 or so. I remember different things happening in the city, not about food, like I wasn't aware of food, but of um, community involvement in community gardens and community building, uh, people, a wonderful place in the Bronx with the word casa in it. Um, wonderful things where communities were building up and I've seen that kind of thing, or I've seemed to see that kind of thing, either gone or co-opted by gentrification. And um, I'm wondering not only, uh, I'm wondering what you know, if you do know anything uh, about what was happening in the city then that enabled those things to happen and are there things that we could use now in your perspective? Thanks for asking that question. I'm 66 years of age, so I grew Me up- Me too. The civil rights movement, the war in Vietnam. And so, I mean, you know, early on you saw activism, again, silent complacency as people, you know, got, tired of marching and, 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 and things changing, things not changing, you know, people became silent and complacent. However, I would like to say as Black Lives Matter, you, you're starting to see this whole young movement now coming to the forefront, demanding change. For the first time, everybody, you know, a lot of people are, are becoming excited. What I'm excited about, hopefully with the um, Biden administration, if they put forth a 15 dollar an hour wage okay folks fifteen dollar an hour wage that means a person makes between thirty and forty thousand dollars a year right two households that's between seventy and eighty thousand dollars a year four people so you have two adults and you maybe have a uh, 18 year old a 20 year old that's almost a hundred and forty thousand dollars a year C can you imagine what that would do they don't have to be on food pantries and soup kitchens. They can buy houses. They can pay for an education. These are the things that I am excited about. Hopefully that can happen because at the end of the day, granted, I love food pantries and soup kitchens. They do a marvelous work. But at the end of the day, they are supposed to be for emergency purposes like now, post-COVID. I want to see economic stimulus that $15 an hour could change the outlook of people having owning homes, owning businesses, getting out of poverty. That's what I'm excited about. Because for me, it's always about, for me, living in a low-income neighborhood, neighborhood of color. I live in the Bronx out of 62 counties in New York State. The Bronx ranks 62 as the most unhealthiest. I wanna see financial responsibility, education, entrepreneurship, job ownership, that's what I want to see. And I don't want to see welfare. I don't want to see SNAP. I don't want to see food pantries. And I don't want to see soup kitchens. And I'm sorry I have to say that. I want to see empowerment. I want to see my community that's rich with ownership and entrepreneurship instead of being pushed out to the side when people with power and privilege come in and push us out of our neighborhoods. One second, Melanie, I see your hand is uh, follow, raised for follow-up here. And then uh, we have one question from Brett in the chat and then just to honor our eight o'clock commitment, um, I will. Okay, Karen, what I'm wondering is 
was in the communities that were doing this building up. I'm not talking about the activism and the protests and the we need, we need. It seemed to me that there were people building, that there were people saying, I have, and I can contribute, and I can share. It seemed to me then that there was, maybe not a lot in my little privileged place, but that there was some. And I'm wondering, was there? Yes, and they sold out. End of conversation. Okay, got you. Thank you. That's what I wanted to know. Okay, so as a final question here, and then if we have a commitment from everybody, we can stick around for another minute or two. But as a final kind of wrap up question, what steps can we take as individuals to lessen this issue? And then also as fourth universalist as an organization, what steps can slash should we take as an organization uh, to make more positive change in, in this area of food insecurity in our communities? And if you need to see that written out, Brett has it in the chat. Weigh in with your elected officials. Um, you know, there, there are gonna be things, you know, coming up on the federal level. Things are pretty desperate budget-wise on the city, you know, in the state and city level that hopefully we'll get some relief. Um, uh, from the federal government, but just to to pay attention to to things that will have a big impact. Um, you know, whether it's the fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage, universal free school lunch, like that's there are things that we could be striving for and should be striving for. And you know, I think this pandemic has shown economic vulnerability in ways. Um, you know, that we haven't seen in an extraordinary amount of time and the, the lack of um, infrastructure to make sure people don't just, you know, people have fallen through the cracks for a long time and then more and more people just falling through the cracks and that's something to pay attention to and there, there are things happening, thankfully. Um, one, uh, like, a connection to the $15 minimum wage uh, law and proposal that I think would be interesting to focus on is um, how it relates to the the tax system and, and the tax credits that people are still like very much left out of while earning a $15 minimum wage. So we, we have certain in certain ways a regressive tax system and that interaction is really problematic. So it's like, how do we make sure that um, as Karen was saying, that these that wages are higher and that it's matched in the tax system the same way that it is for higher income earners because you don't want to be eating away at it, which like in turn happens um, without that consciousness. And Karen, I saw yours in the chat. I can uh, read that or if you wanted to, to share it. Um, but to uh, be proactive instead of reactive. That is some, um, some solid advice for this moment. Uh, and as a quick share from my end here, we do have another um, event next week at the same time, same place, uh, talking about food waste and composting. And Brett is posting uh, some links for you as well. Uh, we did write out some ideas as far as uh, like next uh, steps, action steps, uh, and we will uh, be able to get those being emailed out to you. Things like supporting your local food bank, um, finding community fridges in your neighborhood and asking how you can donate, um, learn more about and consider supporting the Black Farmer Fund, um, learn more about and consider supporting the Northeast Farmers of Color. And so those are gonna be also coming out in an email uh, this is going to be um, uh, written up in, or it's going to be made into podcasts and video forms. And this has also uh, been on YouTube live as well. So we um, uh, have lots of opportunities that if you want to um, be enjoying this in a uh, different way that you can hop on and listen to this over again, listen to some of this insight. Uh, and so we have those links in the chat uh, 
And I want to thank you all for all of your time. And thank you to all of our guests for coming, as well as our uh, guests that attended uh, as well. Um, so Liz, Sophie, Karen, those were amazing presentations. Uh, I really feel like I uh, came away with, with tons of new knowledge and ideas on how to really enact change tonight. So really blessed to have you share with us tonight. Thank you much, everybody. Thank you. Thank you to Soyal and Ember for making this all happen behind the scenes and on screen. And thanks to all our panelists.